listening to the Broadcast Basement On Demand Radio Network. It's the podcast in the Broadcast Basement. Broadcastbasement.com. Welcome to episode 52 of Cinemental. How can you talk if you haven't got a brain? I don't know. But some people without brains do an awful lot of talking. Then why don't you kiss me like everybody else does? How about new? The thing is, Bob, it's not that I'm lazy. It's that I just don't care. I came here like this so you'll know my word of death is true. And that my word of life is then true. everyone, and welcome to another episode of the movie podcast that we can only hope you enjoy listening to as much as we enjoy making. My name is Stephen Hovicki, and as always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Hassan Godwin and Lathan Conger III. So, uh, I had a fruitful week of, of consuming, of consuming media. That uh, Are we like. doing this now? I, I am going to do it right now, yeah. Okay, I just wanted to know. I, I, okay, cool. Okay. So, I watched a movie from 1998, which somehow I missed, with Kenneth Branagh. Uh, called The Gingerbread Man, which is based no, on a John Grisham story, which I hadn't seen. And it had the awesome M. Beth Davitz, who I love, in it. But I, uh, I know this movie. He's a lawyer. Obviously, it's about a lawyer because it's Grisham. But it's uh, it's it, it was like 1998 or something. It's, it's a John Grisham story. I can't remember the director, but... Uh, Great cast. I mean, it's Branna, it's Daryl Hannah, M. Beth Davitz, uh, Tom Berenger, Robert Downey Jr. It's you know, I remember it. Uh, Robert Duvall. It's it's yeah, it rings a bell, but I, it's for some yeah. reason I, it's not. It's a pretty okay. straightforward sort of uh, thriller, mystery thriller kind of thing, and it, it's uh, it's I understand why it didn't go it doesn't ring any bells with people in general, just because it, it, it it's, it's super mediocre and it's not bad in any way. It just does nothing to stand out. So okay. anyway, uh, I watched uh, a few documentaries. I watched the, uh, the power of gray skull, he man documentary that's on Netflix. Okay. Um, Cause that's one of those, that's one of those properties that I just really didn't know that much about. It was, wow. was is it he- a toy? It's the or whole the, thing. It's it's the whole universe. It's the whole everything. He, it's the whole He Man universe. But it's uh, it's pretty good. It's called the Power of Gray Skull. Um, I'll be checking that out. I'll be happy to check that out. And uh, well, there there's new episodes out of Toys That Made Us. I don't know if you've watched any of that mini or any of that series. I, I know of it. Yeah, I saw this. I saw the first two seasons or the oh, first there, season, which a, was there, split into. Yeah, there's a new there's a new third season now. Really? So there's four more okay. episodes. Yeah. All right. And, and then, uh, and then, Latham, have you heard of this show called Song Exploder? Uh, it was just referenced recently to me, and I can't remember who told me. So there's this uh, there's this guy I can't remember his name. It's like Hirsch Cash Ashkar or something like that. But anyway, he apparently he has a podcast called Song Exploder, where each episode he completely dissects one song. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Yep. So so Netflix has turned it into a half hour TV show. And they they dropped the first 
half dozen episodes and it's called song exploder uh two of the songs are rem's losing my religion and uh nine inch nails hurt yeah i that's that's where i read it on a that it, that hurt was one of the songs. That's okay. It's really cool because what the guy does is he plays on his computer in front of the artist or artists, depending. Oh, there's also uh, they do the killers when we were young is another yeah. one they, they they dissect. Um, but they play the song That's and he's got one. a he's got a full sixteen track recording on his computer of the song. So he can isolate tracks and play them individually for the artist and go like, like for the nine inch nail for hurt. He was like, what's this sound? Cause there were sounds that he couldn't identify. Oh, okay. And so then, then Trent would be like, yeah, at the time we were experimenting with this and this, and they talk about, and they, they just, it's all about just one song each episode. That's, pretty, that's on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. It's called song exploder. It's pretty interesting. I mean, the other okay. three are like, um, uh, one there's a rapper who does a song. There's a Dua Lipa song, which this is shit I don't care about. Uh, there's an Alicia Keys one that I didn't get to yet, and there's one, or maybe that's it. I think that might be it. Anyway, Song Exploder, something to check out. Um, there's uh in the movies that made us, they have now done a spinoff show called The Holiday Movies That Made Us, uh, and they cover Elf and. Nah, fuck, I can't remember. Anyway, they only do two movies. The problem I'm finding with these fill-in-the-blank that made us programs, the editors are getting way too cutesy with their editing, and it's like literally they're trying to make an airplane script out of it where every line is turned into some sort of comedic element, and it's getting really difficult to watch. I really okay. like it because they go really deep into the background of the making of these things, but they're they're trying to be too cute with them, uh, and I just feel yeah. like they really need to like ease off the throttle a little bit with the nonsense and just focus on what you're there for. Uh, also, I watched- the movies that made us the the first the first movies that made us season that I watched was really lackluster, con- considering the movies they could have picked. You know, they mm-hmm. were I just. I just remember not being too impressed with their movie picks, you know, and that oh. the fact that there weren't, there weren't like that many. Die of them Hard and Ghostbusters and, um, they weren't, they were, they were really obvious choices. Let's put, yeah, that's, I, I'll put it that way. I didn't, I don't think yeah, they, I, I, they didn't do much stretching when it came to their film choices to dig into. No, no. Yeah. Okay. That's, so yeah, I, I watched, uh, a couple other Netflix documentaries. One I watched called Team Foxcatcher about the DuPont yeah, about and that whole thing. Cause I didn't, I didn't see Foxcatcher, the one with Steve Carell playing John DuPont. Um, I wanted to see it. Yeah. Same here. But the, the documentary was super interesting that just bizarre. Uh, and then I watched a, a documentary called roll red roll, which is about the, um, the high school uh, rapes that went on in Ohio in uh in the cleveland area which uh gained a bunch of uh, notoriety at the time and then uh i watched two brand new movies both horror films remake of castle freak and 
uh, a movie that I really want to watch it with Hassan because it doesn't contain what I think. It's a, it's a horror movie that doesn't contain anybody making bad decisions. And it maintain okay. and it maintains this incredible feeling of dread just throughout the entire thing. And I really just want to see how it how it would affect you watching it. Hmm. Just What's because it called? it's called The Dark and the Wicked. Never seen it. No. It's brand new. It's okay. it's it, it's it's brand new. It's the the whole thing is shot in this sort of overcast uh super rural farm community super small cast the only person who i recognized in the movie and it, and it took me a while to recognize him but xander berkeley's in it and oh okay and uh oh. he has a he has a fairly small part but um lots of lots of instances of people there talking to them and then you start to question whether or not they're there or not, or they were there or not. It's pr- it's pretty interesting without without going into much detail. It's uh, I, I was super impressed. I was I was absolutely. It's what it's. I know it's a good movie when it comes to horror films. I know it's a decent film when I make it throughout the entire thing without once cracking a joke about it as we're watching it. Okay, that's how that's okay. how I that's how I know it's got me. And and this one had me all the way through, so okay. it's definitely worth all your right. time. The dark uh, and the wicked. The dark and the wicked, and then uh, Hannibal. <laughs> I'm up to season eight, or up season. I'm up to episode eight season of season. Eight. Up to episode eight of season three. Okay. Or I should say, we've watched up through season through episode eight, so we're actually up to season episode nine. So Hassan, I'm still I, digging it. <laughs> I will tell you that I absolutely get why what throws you off <laughs> going into Hannibal. Huh? What? Like? No, 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 no. I'm not going to say anything. I'm sure he's not going to reveal anything. I'm not going to say anything. The only thing, <laughs> the only thing I will say that I, I will say this about season uh, or about episode eight. Episode eight, Latham, is yeah. the episode beginning, eight. is episode eight, and what I'm assuming is now, because it's close enough to the end of the season, there's only four episodes left, so I'm guessing that this is going to play out for the rest of the season. But basically from episode eight through the end of season three yeah. is Manhunter. Yeah, it's Manhunter. Yeah, I, I could have guessed that. Right, That's but cool. but it's it's done in a, in a really amazing way. And the guy who plays... Um, the guy who plays Manhunter or plays Francis Dollarhide, yeah, is uh, Thorin Oakenshield. Oh, okay, that's cool. Yeah, it's Richard Armitage. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I like okay, cool. I'm excited to watch that show. Yeah, but, but, I, but without I, giving anything away, you could use without you my giving point. anything away the narrative style of storytelling in the first seven episodes of season three are so completely different than the other two seasons 
I I could completely understand why where if especially coming in where you couldn't watch all the episodes quickly, where you yeah. would just be completely thrown for a loop. I get it. And they and um again without it without revealing anything, they push it for so long. You know, like if it Yeah, but if it was I done didn't... for an episode or two, it would be fine. But Considering how they left off season two. I agree. I and agree. Like, and it, and it's on, not guys. until season five that they really, that you're really brought back season. to speed. But episode five. Episode, I keep saying season, but yes, episode five. But I will say that the seeds are planted. They, they ease you it. They ease you into it. I feel like at the beginning of episode two, they're already opening those doors again. It's just they don't give okay. you a clear picture until five. Here's here's how I feel about it without again, without revealing anything. I start to feel that when you start to manipulate the narrative of the story that you're telling, you're kinda out of story. And so now you're trying to get stylistic with the way you're telling it because you're out of you're out of angles in your yep. story. And that's happened a lot of time. With with lost that happened. They, around season three in Lost, that happened. So they just started to mess with time space and and redo. They would replay the same episode, but from someone else's perspective or whatever. Okay. And after a while, you're like, I am you. It you get caught up in the spectacle of it, which is great. But then after a while, you're like, I'm not being really told anything. You know, this is this is the same thing happening again. Hannibal does not do that, but. By the way, they got they they started to get cheeky, with you know kind of how much information they're going to give you, and where they're going to go, and where they're going with it, what's going on, and when they're going to conclude certain threads that they have dangling out there. It started to get, it started to get. It was like a too clever by half kind of situation. And I, and I, like, I you guys, you guys are brilliant, and you. But the problem is, you're brilliant, and you know it now. And now you're fucking with us, you know. Instead of just telling us a story. And I also, like I said, I get that watching this when it was broadcast, being forced to wait a week between each of those episodes, would have been yeah. would have been annoying. I get it. Uh, it is somewhat softened by the fact that you can just sit and watch them all. And, yeah, you know, in five yeah. and in five hours, you can be where you want to be. So, but even even that's five fucking hours. You know, ah, like that's... I, I I didn't mind I didn't mind all that. I I lo- I kind of liked all that all that stuff they were doing. I I didn't have any. I liked that. I tell you the one thing I do. I can't tell you the one thing I don't. We'll talk no, offline. Um, there's yeah. one. There's one <laughs> thing I don't like. There's one character whose arc I feel they sort of completely destroyed. And I'm sure you can guess what I, who I mean. Yeah. But I just probably. feel like that doing, I, I just, and twice, twice, almost, you know, twice in a season, in a season and a half. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah. why, why? But it doesn't matter. Um, anyway, our guest tonight began his film journey working as a makeup and special effects artist before moving into film and theater direction. However, he is probably best known for his work as production designer on a little film called The Blair Witch Project and creating the iconic Stickman figure and then writing and or directing several Blair Witch Mythology support specials. He then formed Visible Man Productions, creating branded content, found footage, and subversive advertising in support of existing IP like Hellboy, True Blood, and Audi. 
Most recently, and how I became acutely aware of him, he co-wrote and directed the brilliant 10-part horror fiction podcast for Shudder called Video Palace. Ben Rock, welcome to Cinemental. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here. <laughs> Again, we're super, we're super excited <laughs> man, to have you. Man, that sounded rehearsed. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, why they do, that's why we do rehearsals. Um, <laughs> so tell me, Ben, how did you get involved with the Blair Witch guys? Um, I uh, went to college with all of those guys. Uh, Greg Hale, who is the producer, uh, he and I went to a, uh, an all-technical film program that's still going, actually, in Orlando called, at uh, Valencia. Uh, now it's Valencia College. Back then it was Valencia Community College. It's still a community college, by the way. Um, <laughs> but they have an amazing, amazing technical film program. So if you want to work behind the scenes, you know, grip, camera, sound, electric, art department, blah, blah, blah. They, uh, they, they have an amazing program. And uh, Greg and I were in the second year of that program. Um, they set it up uh, like Universal Studios and MGM had moved into Orlando around that time and they paid a, a lot of money. And in fact, Steven Spielberg, no, no less than Steven Spielberg went on the Today Show to plug Valencia Community College's film program, which is probably where most of my classmates heard about it. It was basically just to establish a crew base. But there was also, uh, there are three, there's more than three, but there were three main film programs in Orlando at the time. There was Valencia, uh, University of Central Florida, UCF, and Full Sail, which Full Sail is still going strong. And, you know, we have oh. Full Sail to thank for filmmakers like uh, yeah. Stephen C. Miller. Um, and, uh, oh, crap, I'm, I just lost his name. The guy who directed like Saw 2, he directed the new Saw. Why am I blanking on his Darren Lynn Bowsman? Yes, Darren Lynn Bowsman. I'm sorry. I know Darren. Um, or oh, I've nice. met, I, I shouldn't say I know Darren. I've met Darren several times. He's a cool guy. Uh, they, they are, they are full sale people. Uh, UCF, uh, was sort of built, uh, on like an NYU style conservatory. Like their, their whole method was to sort of just turn you loose and let you make films. And, uh, I was in the third class, Ed, uh, Sanchez and Dan Myrick, who co-directed Blair Witch were in the first class. So they were basically finishing it up as because it was a two-year program. They were kind of like doing the final touches on the on their final films and stuff when I was just starting there. But I'd already known Dan because uh, he'd come to Valencia to crew up some of his short films. So I'd worked. Uh, I was a makeup artist actually, and I'd done makeup on a film for uh, one of his shorts back then. So uh, anyway, uh, yeah, we all went to college uh, together and. Uh, really, I, I mean, like Ed and Dan had worked on stuff together and Dan and Greg had worked on stuff together, but I don't think we'd all worked on anything all, all like that whole crew. And I'd worked with Greg on a bunch of stuff as well, but it was a few years out of film school that, uh, that Greg kind of read me into what they intended to do. And uh, I, I was very, very excited to work on it. Yeah. It's uh, it, it really is an, uh, an amazing accomplishment to, uh, to what was the, what was the final budget on that? Uh, the shooting budget, as I am led to understand, uh, was about twenty five thousand dollars. It yeah. might have been—I mean, it's thereabouts. I, I, you'll hear people say two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I can guarantee you that that was not the case. <laughs> um, I, I was told by the time it got to Sundance, they'd spent that kind of money on it, but that's because they had to hire publicists and they had to yep. get a film print struck. I mean, striking a film print from a digital file back then uh, would run you about fifty grand just by itself. Wow! Holy shit! Yeah. And you couldn't play Sundance unless you had a 35 millimeter print, you know, and it premiered at Sundance. So, you know, that, yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of cash, 
but um but yeah it was you know no one got paid anything to work on it it was a, a labor of love for all of us at the time yeah that yeah i mean that's just an, an amazing an amazing thing that uh, that came out of that but um so how did i know that you you i watched a couple of the the sort of connecting connective tissue uh mockumentaries uh the mm. burkittsville seven and shadow of the blair witch today oh yeah. uh how did how did the sort of the creation of all the blair Witch mythology fall onto you um, well, when uh, Greg first brought me on board, there was kind of an outline of the mythology. And uh, in fact, that was the pitch. Gre- the, the way I learned about Blair Witch is the same way everyone learned about Blair Witch. You know, like Greg told me the story about the legend of the Blair Witch. And he said, like, you know, have you ever heard of the Blair Witch? And I said, you mean the Bell Witch? Because there's right. the, Bell w- the Bell Witch is a famous legend in Adams, Tennessee. And uh, he's like, no, no, the Blair Witch. And then he kind of ran me through like a rough version of the mythology. And then he, uh, he said, Hey, you know, Ed, Ed Sanchez is from Maryland. Right. I'm like, yeah, I guess I sort of, I don't know if I knew that. And, and, uh, he was like, well, he had some friends at uh, Montgomery college who went to off to make a documentary about this. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. He's like, but they disappeared. And I'm like, what? And he was like, uh, yeah, but a year later their film all turned up under the foundation of the uh-huh. house. I'm like, no way. I'm like eating this all out of his hand. <laughs> and he said, we're going to analyze this film, the footage. And I was like, dude, you guys are all going to die. And then <laughs> he, uh, then he, then he told me, you know, what the, what the deal was. And I, I thought it was brilliant. And the way Ed and Dan wanted to make the movie all improvisationally was brilliant. Um, and so I kind of just said, like, I'm, I'm, I'm here to do whatever there is. You know, I'll sweep the floors. Let me do whatever. And the first thing they had me do was flesh out the mythology. So I, like, named all the characters, Ellie Kedward and all that stuff. And I went to a library and poured through encyclopedias and made photocopies. And we made, like, a pitch tape. Um, and the pitch tape managed to, it's a longer story, but managed to get in the hands of John Pearson. And he had a show on IFC at the time called Split Screen. And John Pearson had basically the same reaction to that tape that I'd had to Greg, which was like, what, what's on this film? We got to know what's on this film. <laughs> and, and, and then Dan told him that it was all, you know, all a, a lie. And uh, he thought it was hilarious. So he put it up. And actually, I don't know how many people know this. I don't think I'm saying anything out of, out of turn. But um, basically, Split Screen hired Ed and Dan and Greg to make two segments uh, for Split Screen. The first one was mostly just that thing, the pitch tape that we'd made. And then the second one had footage of the actual film. Well, their their uh, segment fee was like seven grand, so uh, like fourteen grand of the twenty five grand was that. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow, that's. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, I remember when that film came out, and there was so much so much had been fleshed out and put out as fact, just as just as supporting material. I mean, that was one of the first times I ever saw anything like that done as far as promotional marketing for a film. And you, you really didn't know if, you know, if you weren't paying attention, you didn't know, nobody knew that it wasn't, that it wasn't real. I mean, it was, it was so solid <laughs> and it was so well done that all that material just felt so, it, it just felt so natural, I should say, you know. Well, thank just, you. Yeah, I mean, to me, that was the most, I mean, like making the movie was a blast. I'm not saying that the movie itself wasn't a lot of fun. But I feel like building this crazy backstory mythology, uh, when when you get to do it on a, on any project, it, it really is a lot of fun because, for me anyway, uh, when you're creating something that's supposed to feel like folklore, that means it's everything doesn't have to line up perfectly. People will ask me in Blair Witch, what's canon? What's canon? Is this canon or is that canon? And I'm like, the 
the most fun of it is to take the one thing that you think is like an unmovable moment in the, in the timeline and say, it's not true. And I did that when I did the Burkittsville seven, which you brought up um, artisan wanted. Uh, so Blair, which was going to premiere on Showtime artisan wanted to make another TV special in Showtime wanted another TV special like curse of the Blair, Witch, but they didn't want one that was going to like march you through the Blair, Witch mythology. Cause they'd already done that in curse. And they also didn't want to talk at all about the sequel. And they asked me, and, and all the Haxon guys basically were off at, you know, like they were all trying to get their next movie made that wasn't Blair Witch related. So they kind of recommended me. And when I went in and pitched them the idea of the Burkittsville 7, which was like, okay, let's, let's take the most recent thing next to the kids disappearing in the woods. And that's the Rustin Park killings, which was in, I think, 1941. And uh, let's say he didn't do it. Like, what if he didn't do it? What if, what if, the, what if the kid that got away did it? And, uh, and, and completely blow up like this whole, this whole mystique <laughs> around the Rustin Park character. If, and this is never going to happen, but if I was given free reign to make, <laughs> to make a Blair Witch 4 or whatever it would be, I would make a prequel about the origin story and make it absolutely 100% not Ellie Kedward, who is the Blair Witch. Like she is an, <laughs> an innocent bystander. <laughs> because I, because that's, that's the way folklore works. You know, it's like you, you hear a legend from, you know, about, you know, whatever it is, Slenderman or Bigfoot or something from one part of the country. And then you hear it from someone else. The stories don't line up. They're totally different. And the real story is always weirder than you could have imagined it. And to me, that's, that was the fun of this is that you could kind of build that from the ground up. The Burkittsville 7 is like some of the most fun I've ever had making something like that because Artisan didn't care if I was super subversive about it. They just wanted to keep people engaged. And, you know, they were really the only people I was answering to were the marketing people, uh, Amaret Jones, mostly at Artisan. And she loved how freaking weird this was. You know, I brought in a copy of Titicut Follies, the Frederick Wiseman documentary, and said, I want to find documentary footage that looks like this. I want to recreate this look. And they were like, yeah. I mean, like, I, I was too new and green in the business to realize that does not happen. Like, that's, that's yeah. very unusual for people to be like, oh, uh, Frederick Wiseman documentary, you say? Let's go do it. You know, and, <laughs> you know I'm, a, I'm not, I, I, I'm absolutely not saying anything negative about Frederick Wiseman. He's a friggin' genius and he's one of the, my favorite filmmakers. But it was, you know, just like one of those things where you just can't expect people in Hollywood to know or care about anything that isn't from the last year and a half. Yeah, painful but true there. Yeah, it's just the way it is. Something I was gonna, yeah, because something of the, that I found what I thought was great about the, um, I think it was in the Burkittsville Seven episode, the one where they had the old man on talking about he had the only copy he thought was the only copy of the Blair Witch Cult book. He's yeah. like, and he always wanted to make a copy, but he he never wanted he never read it all because it was falling apart, and he didn't want the binding to come. <laughs> And I was just like, man, I'd have been at the fucking library's video copying that <laughs> motherfucker every goddamn day. If it fell apart, oh well. <laughs> at least I yeah. had copies of it. <laughs> yeah, that was Bill Dreggers. He was a real historian, by the way. He he ran the Deland Historical Society in Deland, Florida, and uh, they hired him on Curse of the Blair Witch. And Curse of the Blair Witch, they hired like it was all it was shot in Florida. And uh, so they, uh, he was just such a great character. And so we brought him back for both Burkittsville 7 and Shadow of the Blair Witch because he could sort of be, when you needed uh, Dr. Exposition, he was, uh, you know, sort of like a somewhat sinister Burl Ives there to tell you about it. <laughs> <laughs> just maybe a so little bit off the Maybe beaten. a somewhat <laughs> less sinister Burl Ives. But yeah, Bill was, Bill was a wonderful guy. He, he, was, he was great. Yeah, that was funny because I was watching it and I, I I looked over and I was watching one of the segments and they and I the guy the guy I can't remember Dave uh 
the guy who was the doctor on CSI. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, Robert David Hall. Robert, yeah. Yes, I'm like, hey, wait a second, I know that guy. Yeah, we cast him before he was on CSI. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so after the fact, it gave me away. But first. Before then, yeah, well, that's just it. Um, and then, how did uh, how did you get to Video Palace? Uh, Video Palace uh, was brought to me by Mike Manello, and Mike Manello was the uh, co-producer of the Blair Rich Project. And I, I always like to remind people that Mike, you know, as co-producer. Uh, he, one of, one of his, uh, one of his many contributions was pitching to, to the hacks and guys that maybe they should make a website. So, uh, yeah, he's, so he, brilliant. Mike is, Mike is a visionary and he, uh, owns a company in, um, in New York called campfire, uh, NYC, and they do, uh, kind of super brilliant out of the box, uh, ad campaigns, marketing stuff. Uh, like really brilliant stuff, like for uh, the man in the high castle, they did this pirate radio uh, campaign that was just, oh, I remember that friggin' genius. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I've actually worked on a few of his campaigns. I worked on him on a, for the Audi thing that I did was for him. Um, the true blood thing I did was for him. And Mike and I are just, we're really good friends. And for about five years, we've been kicking around the idea of us doing our own uh, fiction podcast. You know, we both love podcasts we both have strong opinions about how to kind of get the feel of a first person podcast. So not like a radio play, but like a, you know, a first person investigation. And a lot of it does go back to Blair Witch and also those, those specials, Burkittsville seven shot of the Blair Witch curse of the Blair Witch. I also did something just like that for Hellboy. Um, that was more, it looks more like Dateline NBC, but it was for the first Hellboy movie, the Guillermo del Toro Hellboy. It's called uh, the BPRDD classified. And, and there's, there's like a technique that I, I, I don't want to take credit for something I didn't invent, but I don't, I don't think anyone, I think I might've invented this technique, uh, but, 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 but feel free to steal it. And if someone else invented it and I somehow cribbed from them, I apologize. But when we do an interview um, with somebody, I'll write up like a two page bio or a three page bio. It depends. I mean, if they're the main character, it might be longer. So like, uh, Chris Carrasco, the, the main character in Burkittsville seven, his, 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 whole thing might've been a whole lot longer. Um, but basically the idea is like, here's the brief, memorize the facts and feel free to embellish whatever you want to embellish. And then I interview them basically as themselves, but just with that information. So they rephrase it in their own words. And if I need to tweak it and say like, Oh no, we really need it like this. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll still tweak it, kind of put it in their own words. And in the script, if you were to read the script, it's a regular old screenplay in a video palace is like this too. It's a regular old screenplay, but when you get to the interview sections, they're all in italics. So it'd be like, he talks about the white tapes and how he blah, blah, blah. Right. So, um, and then when we're recording the interview, we just sit there and make sure that we get all the information that's in there, but it's actually okay if you have to edit it together. Cause that's how you put together an interview. And even just the way they're edited, the act of editing, it makes it sound more like a real interview. If right. that makes any sense. Yeah. So, uh, so Mike and I had these ideas and we've been kicking them around. So Mike had an, uh, a, a relationship with, uh, one of the, um, uh, executives over at uh, shutter, a guy named Owen Shiflett and he and Nick, uh, Brachia, who also worked at, at campfire at the time had this idea and they kind of wrote up like a, like an outline and they pitched it to Owen and, uh, another guy named Nick Lazo and they both really liked it. And uh, so Mike reached out to me and said, if this were to happen, would you be interested in writing and directing it? And he showed me the outline and I was like, yeah, it looks pretty cool. 
And uh, it was finally like we basically could do the thing that we'd been talking about doing at our own expense, except we'd get to do it for, you know, for, for our client, basically, or a network. Not really a client. Bob DeRosa, who I co-wrote it with, is always uh, bitch slapping me whenever I refer to them as a client. He's like, they're the network. We're the creators. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's different because if you're like making a, you know, a commercial for Dial Soap, they're the client. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so, uh, um, so I asked if I could bring Bob on. And Bob and I have worked together for years. We did a web series together called 20 Seconds to Live, which you can check out if you want. Uh, it's a kind of a fun horror comedy thing we've been doing for a while. And uh, we've done tons of theater together and we've developed movies that haven't been made like everyone else in LA. And, um, but Bob has, uh, Bob wrote, uh, there's a movie with Ashton Kutcher called Killers. He wrote that. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a movie that uh, has a humongous cast like uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar and Brendan Fraser and Andy Garcia, uh, uh, Emil Hirsch, a humongous, amazing cast called The Air I Breathe. He, he co-wrote that. And he had also uh, been a staff writer or excuse me, a story editor, which is I am given to understand higher than a staff writer, but it is a writing position on a few episodic series, including white collar. And uh, I asked them like, you know, could I bring Bob on to uh, co-write it with me? Because I felt like we needed to do something that kind of when we broke the story, it would have to break in episodes. And, uh, and so, you know, Bob, in addition to just being a, a more prolific writer than me by a long shot, um, he and I were able to kind of hash out, you know, with literally index cards on a cork board, the whole, the whole 10 episodes kind of starting from their outline, making tweaks or whatever, and kind of running it by Mike and Nick and making sure they were cool with it, took it into shutter. They liked it. It's one of the fastest projects I've ever turned around. I was, my son was born on May 4th, 2018. We started writing it about three weeks later. Uh, so beginning of June, the whole thing was turned in by the end of August, like done, finished. Wow. We nice. cast it, we recorded it, we posted. Yeah, it was super fast. Holy cow, that's amazing. I, I, I will contrast that with a project that I'm currently working on for another audio company where I was first contacted la two Februarys ago and we're <laughs> hoping that we might get to shoot it or record it next year. True story. Wow. Yeah, uh, I don't, uh, I'm no stranger when it comes to uh, that uh, dealing with large TV and film companies as far as getting especially getting contract stuff done. It's just like, oh, yeah. I mean, when we, we did our, we did a book based on stranger things for Netflix. Uh, and oh man, we met them in May and uh, we sat in a room with them at a licensing show in Vegas and had a great meeting. They loved it. They said, here's who you need to talk to at, you know, we, we deal with random house. So you got to go through random house. They gave us the person. We reached out to them. And we did not have a signed contract until January of the following year. Mm. So it took, and that was, and that was a deal that was basically all set. I mean, they, they had already given the, the green light to, to random house. We want to make this book with these guys, make the deal happen. And it still took that long to get, you know, it took two more meetings with two more other Netflix people who we hadn't met before at two other conventions just to get, you know, just to, to, to make sure, I don't even know why. Cause I mean, we literally had gone <laughs> through everything through our calls and emails and yet, you know, we, they're like, Oh, are you going to be at New York comic con? Or like, yeah, of course we're going to be there. Oh, well let's meet up and, and, you know, just say hi. And uh, this person from this department is going to be there. And I'm like, okay, great. You know, are we going to see a contract anytime soon? Oh yeah. Yeah. They're working on it. <laughs> 
but just yeah. yeah. What do you I'm, need a contract for? Some of that stuff is just <laughs> unreal. Yeah. Some of that yeah, this, stuff just takes just unbelievable. It just takes forever. Of time. Yeah. This project also, like, we got a con a contract last. I want to say not this past July, but the July before, and we'd already agreed to the money. And our lawyer kind of asked some questions to their legal people. Like again, it was just clarifying stuff. It wasn't like yeah demanding new stuff. And it it took four months to get it to from there to a thing we could sign. And yeah, you know, it's, it's just the way it is. And I'm not, I mean, it's, it's nothing to complain about. I just think that like when you're working in this business, you sort of have to have so many lines in the water at all times so that whatever the yeah. thing is that actually goes, you can jump on it and do it. Exactly. That's exactly right. And we, that's what we completely, what we ran into. I mean, we started our, our publishing thing five years ago. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've managed to get out four books in five years. Uh, and, and a lot of that time has just been like waiting and to getting, trying to get deals put together as opposed to actually working on getting stuff done. Cause I mean, we can put the books together in a pretty, in a pretty quick turnaround now. And, and that, but it's, it's the whole, it's all the lead up them. It's all the, the getting, it's all the, the yeah. meetings and the getting everything squared away. And then, like you said, once it goes, once it goes to legal, you're just you're just sitting there waiting for the phone to ring with them saying, "Oh no, we haven't heard anything back yet." Yeah, because it's uh, the 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 room full of lawyers thing is just an unbelievable roadblock to so many. It has to be a roadblock to so many projects. You know, just almost like a death by attrition. Yeah, it's just sort of like yeah, you you, you know you become a different person by the time you know you're like you you know you found God or you uh, you know you you've. <laughs> you've, you've <laughs> Changed your nationality by the time the thing gets done. I mean, to, to me, to Moved me, to a different country. Well, well, to me, the hard you part changed is your just, career by the time yeah, they get back. Yeah. And to me, the hard, the hard part is like, and and I mean, like this story I'm outlining is by no means unusual, um, but it's like it takes so long, and then like when it finally starts happening, you're like, okay, what was this again? And you, you have to kind of get back into it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. Uh -huh. Definitely. Yeah. I've been uh -huh. I've been hyped up for a project. You know, super excited, and then eight months later, I'm like. What did I have? I, I, where are all my notes well, for this? It's like on three I, legal pads ago. <laughs> and I feel like that's like the thing like this. Again, I'm not going to say what the project is, but what this other project, like the difference between that and Video Palace was Shutter wanted Video Palace. And when we talked to them in April, our producer, Liam Finn, said, uh, ideally, when would you have this finished? And, and uh, Owen said, mid-July. And it was like, <laughs> in April? There's no chance, you know. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it was... You know, when, when the client wants something, and this is why commercials are a faster turnaround, you know, when the client, yeah. when you have a, when you have a client or a network who wants a thing finished, then there's a fire under everyone's ass to move forward. And when you have, when you're making something that's like a regular old movie or a regular old whatever, uh, you know, it, stuff just takes as long as it takes. And you kind of have to just have a stomach for that, you know, yeah. if don't want, uh, you know, your executive to, uh, you know, die or leave the company or something. Yeah. I've, I've had multiple friends get into that position where they've had deals or they've had started to set up deals someplace. And then for whatever reason, the guy that they've been dealing with either leaves or gets kicked and, or the whole yeah. crew turns around, whatever. And it's like the next day, that's it. There's that, that's it. Everything left with that guy. And it's like, that, yeah. that was your champion. And it's like, you, you either starting over at zero completely or they won't even take your call. Yeah, there was a movie that I don't know that I was for sure going to direct, but there was a movie that I was 
circling like this uh, very established company wanted me to do it. And then, yeah, the executive left and I was able to get a meeting with the person who replaced that person. But, you know, like you just don't want, I guess that culture is such that you just don't want to have the stench of the previous person's work <laughs> on you. So, you know, and when that, you know, I mean like everybody in LA will tell you that story. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's just the way it is. I mean, it sucks. I, you know, <laughs> what do you do though? Yeah. What a yeah. quit showbiz. <laughs> <laughs> Why on earth? Moving on to your, the films we're actually here to talk about. Let's do it. Um, let's start with your, your film choice. Uh, Fast, cheap, and out of control. When they come through the door, you've got about three seconds to do what we call read them. Are they coming after you? If you're not scared of them, you're in big trouble. <laughs> I've been told by several people, well, you're old-fashioned. You, uh, you want to do everything by hand. This is the only way you can do it and do it right. A friend of mine called me and he said to me, Ray, they found them. And I said, where? And he said, in Africa. It's a thing called the naked mole rat, and they have a society just like termites. When I switched the things on, the lights flashed and the machine came to life. It moved. Understanding life by building something that is lifelike. Fast, cheap, and out of control. There may not be a place for humans in the future if we're really successful. From 1997, directed by Errol Morris with a running time of 87 minutes, legendary documentarian Errol Morris manages to take the stories of the lives of four men whose careers are off the beaten path and manages to weave them into a completely different narrative of relation not only to one another, but all of us. Ben, <laughs> why this movie? Oh my God. I, 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 I love this movie so much. This was I'd seen other Errol Morris movies before this. I'd seen The Thin Blue Line and A Brief History of Time, and I thought they were cool. And I was actually at the very same movie theater I was just talking about, the Enzion Theater, as a projectionist and a manager when this movie came out. And it was one of two movies that I would go on my day off and just watch over and over again. The other one being Pie, Darren Aronofsky's Pie. Same year. Um, so Errol Morris, I believe this is the first time he used uh, the technique he had kind of pioneered called the Interotron, right. where he basically puts a teleprompter in front of two different cameras. And he's in the other room on one camera and the person being filmed is, is in a separate room. But when they're uh, looking into the lens, because the teleprompter is not projecting text, it's projecting the image of him from the next room. So they're looking right into his eyes. So the whole interview, uh, that all the interviews that he does, it feels like these people are talking right to you. And the people in this movie come from four radically different backgrounds. So you've got a lion tamer, a guy who cuts topiary sculptures out of plants and makes them look like animals, a guy who specializes in naked mole rats, pretty big specialization. And then uh, a, a guy who uh, is designing the very beginning of artificially intelligent robots. And this is in the nineties. That guy, by the way, is fascinating. He's still around. I mean, they're all still around. I think uh, they might, I don't know if they're still alive, but that guy's name is Rodney Brooks. And I believe he is part of the team that created the Roomba. And if you watch Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, you'll get it. But what I love about this movie is how it twists your brain around itself. So when it starts, you're like, what the hell do these four dudes have in common with each other? And by the end, you're <laughs> like, they're all talking about the same thing. And it's because they're all talking about obsession. And, 
and even like the topiary gardener who seems like kind of a mild super old guy uh you know like he's going after a kind of perfection that that's insane and the lion tamer when i saw it actually uh the lion tamer was uh kind of the first time i saw it he came to the screening and was and was kind of talking he said i don't even understand what this movie's about um <laughs> but uh but to me it's a movie that is uh it's it's just the magic of cinema um in that I could watch the movie 10 times and walk away with 10 different conclusions. And it's also of the movies that I love, probably the only one that I would like show to if my, if she were still alive that I would show to my grandmother, you know, like it's, it's not, it's not a, it, it's, it's not tense and dark and scary. It's kind of uplifting in a way um, because it's yeah. kind of saying that these people's obsessions are great. And uh, I just can't say enough good about this movie. The soundtrack I love oh. this. The soundtrack is brilliant. You, I've heard that soundtrack used on NPR a million times, <laughs> like on This American Life and stuff like that. Um, the cinematography by Robert Richardson, who, you know, uh, has, he shot the last several Quentin Tarantino movies. And at that time, he was still kind of in a, he was the main DP for Oliver Stone and he shot a bunch of stuff for Martin Scorsese. Like his cinematography is just, uh, is gorgeous and amazing and evocative and painterly. And uh, there's just literally, I love every frame of that movie. I could, I could hang up right now and go watch it again. It's a movie <laughs> that really stuck with me. Is it my favorite movie of all time? I don't know, but it's definitely one that I, uh, I, I always recommend to people. And I think is kind of a, a timeless, it's timeless in, in, in its, in what it does, which is Errol Morris's stuff is generally timeless. Although like, the Fog of War is about the Vietnam War and, and, and Robert McNamara and, and the unknown. Like some of his stuff is very topical and news, newsy. And this is just kind of a, a brilliant, beautiful, abstract interrogation of, of, of obsession and madness. And, and I love it every frame. I, yeah, I, uh, I'm a big documentary guy. I had, I've seen a few of, of Errol Morris's things uh, and I had not seen this one. So uh, this, was, this was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I, I knew nothing about this going in and, uh, it was, you know, I, other than what the, the synopsis, I had, the quick synopsis I had read on like IMDB about it, just being about these four different guys who work in somewhat, you know, the way they describe it is four guys who work in like somewhat animal related industries or in their professions, you know, in, mm -hmm. in some bizarre way but uh, i would argue that robots are the opposite of animals but yeah right but his robots are based on insects initially sort so of, it's yeah. kind of like animals so i think that yeah, they, was the, they walk like insects yeah that's yeah and uh i love the uh he, yeah like you said he he was super interesting to listen to because when he was talking initially uh and like you said when this came out you know robotics was a, a very young uh industry at the time especially at mit they were like they were on the bleeding edge of that stuff and him talking about how, how you would take, you know, in, in, in learning it, they, it's like, you didn't teach it to walk, you know, you, you gave it, you gave it a series of processes to do and that made it walk. And that's how, yeah. and that's, that would propel it forward or move it, whatever it was. He goes, he goes, but he's like, so all you are is telling it, giving it a series of processes to do and repeat. He goes, and so, you know, the more you want it to do is just you give it more processes to do. And he goes, and it's not like you're, it's not like it's 
you know, this was well before AIs and all that kind of stuff. And he was just talking about literally robotic programming. And he goes, and it's funny how he goes, it's really funny how people look at stuff like this and, and get sort of this malevolence out of it when really all it is, is a series of processes that are repeated. It's not, it's not putting anything together itself. It's not doing anything it wasn't told to do. It's just, it's just doing what it was, what it was, you know, programmed to do. And, uh, and like you said, you know, and I, and I didn't even catch the, the obsession part of it. Uh, I think that's most obvious with the, with the mole rat guy, uh, his, his, uh, <laughs> the, the, when, when he starts talking about, yeah. he goes, well, if you have one in your hand and, and you feel him start to press down, you want to grab him right away. Cause so, cause if he's other at his next thing is he's going to try and take a bite out of you and see if he can burrow through it. And I'm yeah. just like that. What? Like what, he's going to eat through your hand. Like, what are you talking about, dude? Uh, and I, and I loved how it's like, after, even when he was done, he kept like, uh, he kept, he has like a mole rat, like, uh, uh, uh you know, a burrow or whatever he built yeah. in his office that he keeps a, a, a selection of them around all the time that are just, they're just kind of like existing there. And, uh, yeah, that was it, the lion trainer guy seemed like the least, or I should say the most innocuous of all of them. You know, you know, really that that and the topiary guy. I mean, the topiary mm-hmm. guy was just he's in he was just kind of doing a job. I get your point about about the obsession part of that, though, because that, you know, thinking that you can tame nature again, you know, and that goes back to the lion tamer guy as well. Well, all four of them are basically trying to tame nature. That's you know, right. In but a, I, in think, a, in a I think that the, like the, the robot guy is trying to create nature. Right. The, right. The, the mole rat guy is is trying harness. to harness trying yeah and trying to understand it yeah the topiary guy is trying to make nature look like other nature right bend it to his will and the lion tamer is sort of trying to entertain us with nature that should not be entertaining to us you know that (laughs) that should more likely would want to murder and eat us exactly uh latham so i found all four subjects in the movie really interesting i think what i'd question with this movie is how you know, I understand how he's trying to connect everything. And I, there's obvious scenes uh, that are, you know, spliced together that where one character is talking over the other character doing whatever he's doing. And you can see the parallels Mm -hmm. and that was really clever. And I like that. I, and, and I did, I did enjoy the movie. I'm glad I watched it. I just, I'm not getting the full theme, the full theme of, especially with the title of the movie. And I know the quote itself is in the movie. I, I just don't get where that comes from and, and what that has to do with the themes being brought forward. I, I, to me, it seemed like he was trying to make all four subjects basically just interchange with each other where something they'd say would apply to all of them and something they do would apply to the rest of them. And, and I got that. And like I said, I got that. I just, I don't know. It didn't, by the time it was over, it didn't resonate with me on a high level as to what his point was. <laughs> and I've, I've seen other Errol Morris movies and, and like them too. And, and like I said, I did like this one. I just didn't think it was as poignant or, or effective as the other ones of his I've seen. The music is great. I think the music is is an important part of this and the glue that holds a lot of it together. It's hard to it's hard to put into words because it, it, it 
it's something like most documentaries are more straightforward than this. And Errol Morris has his own distinct style. And that's why I like, you know, I like his movies because instantly, you know, it's an Errol Morris movie. I just think this one is less effective uh, compared to, you know, say the thin blue line or a brief history of time. So, uh, you know, I enjoyed it. I just, when it was all said and done, I, I would have rather have seen, a movie about each of these four guys alone than trying to mush them together and compare the themes, if that makes any sense. That's I, think, I think it's interesting that, uh, that in, in this movie, you know, like you said, you're talking about in, in most documentaries where it's about a single subject or a single course that you're following. And here's where he's taking, I, I almost feel like he's trying to apply a fictional narrative to four non-fictional yeah, stories. And, and, yeah. And then try, and at the end, he's sort of interweaving them. And I love it. I love it when you first, when you finally realize what he's doing, because he start, he'll have the one guy talking, but he'll be showing like B-roll footage that connects to another guy. You know, yeah. like he'll be showing circus footage while the robot guy was talking. And I thought that was that was really clever when he did that. I just don't think it came uh, into full fruition. And I'd be interested to hear. Uh, what Ben what Ben thought of the title of the movie and what what he thinks it means? Uh, that's an interesting question. I've never honestly I've never really thought about it just because to me that's it just came to me you know as a projectionist that I had to splice these you know whatever six reels together and it was called Fast Cheap and Out of Control. Um, I think it's an evocative title because it makes me go like what what is Fast right. Cheap and Out of Control yeah. and um, you know and obviously the title. Uh, connects to the thing Rodney Brooks says in the movie about uh, sending robots into space to, you know, how much cheaper it is uh, instead of sending uh, one astronaut or one big robot to Mars, right. send send 400 tiny robots that can all do one simple thing. But uh, I, I wish I had a more profound answer for you. Uh, I, I, I feel like the title doesn't hang me up. I think it kind of evokes the if if the word whimsical can be used to describe an Errol Morris movie, it describes the whimsical nature of it. You know, for a guy who's, who makes movies about Stephen Hawking or, you know, murders or, uh, you know, the, the guy who fixes the guy who fixes the electric chair, which is not, if you've never seen Mr. Death, uh, Mr. Death is a great documentary because it just folds your brain inside of itself um, <laughs> over the ethical dilemma of, uh, do you care that the guy who fixes your your state's electric chair is a neo-Nazi hero. And, <laughs> and also was, was he just a simpleton who was manipulated by Nazis to do the terrible things right. he did? And it's, it, it's uh, su such a weird ass movie. It was the movie he made right after this. Uh, he even his newest movie, American Dharma, which is about um, Steve Bannon uh, is uh, possibly the scariest movie I've seen in years. Uh, because <laughs> he obviously doesn't agree with anything Steve Bannon does, but he lets Steve Bannon run his, you know, his yap a lot. Oof. And you kind of start to think like, okay, I, I kind of understand your logic. Also you're evil. Uh, sorry. I, I, I don't know any of your politics, so I hope I'm not offending everybody. But, um, you're not. <laughs> Pretty easy but, um, here, ben. but, uh, <laughs> but, but son. oh no, I alienated him. Um, <laughs> no, but, like, I think what's interesting about Errol Morris, and when I do my podcast, I try to, I, I'd read some interviews with him, uh, specifically around Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. 
I try to channel what he does. I don't know that I do it that successfully, but he had, <laughs> at one point he'd been a private investigator before he was a filmmaker. Hmm. And he said, the best way to interview someone is to just let them talk and eventually they'll stop. And if you don't say anything, they'll just start talking again and you'll get better information <laughs> out of them. True. Um, and also side note, the first, I, I, I've done some journalism in my life. A lot of it was for uh, backstage and uh, the very first interview they ever had me do was Errol Morris. And it was the most intimidating thing I ever wow. did. I went in with a notebook full of questions and I asked him like, honestly, one question. And then he just talked for a half hour. Um, <laughs> brilliant guy. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, really, like truly one of my heroes and, and, and really was awesome. Uh, anyway, to kind of circle back to what you're saying about the title. I don't, I don't know. Is there a better title? I don't know what title encapsulates what he's doing. What he's doing is such a weird... Uh, off the beaten path tapestry of a documentary and his editing and cinematography and everything were all kind of unusual. I think we're used to seeing documentaries now where people are looking right down the barrel of the camera, but that was very unusual then. Like I actually have a device called an iDirect that's like a teleprompter on its side. And if you sit kind of behind the uh, camera operator, the, the person you're interviewing can see you reflected directly in front of them and you can, you're just five feet away from them. And I've used it on a bunch of corporate jobs mostly. But back then, Errol Morris was kind of creating this new thing. So uh, I will say to kind of to your point, I think that maybe part of what I'm loving about it is that it doesn't feel like a real documentary. And especially in its time, it kind of blazed a trail in terms of the way it, it used the nonfiction form uh, in such an unusual way. Uh, I can't answer for the title. though. That's no, okay. Well, you know, Rodney Brooks used that title of his, that was the title of the paper that he yeah. wrote about that with that concept that he explained in the movie. Now he took the title as a spoof on the old, the old adage that comes from engineering, which is to make an end consumer product, you have fast, cheap, and reliable, and you can only have two of the three at any given time. Yeah. Oh, it's and like, so Film people want want shit all the time, super fast, and and everyone will say fast, cheap, and good. Pick any two. Right, exactly, and that's that's where that comes from. So, and I think that that you know his his idea of of kind of playing a little bit on that for his paper on the robotic concept. Clearly, I mean that's kind of where the source of the title comes from. But you know that the out of control part is uh, is kind of like you said a whimsical way to kind of approach that. Uh, Hassan, I didn't know what to make of any of it. Um, by reading the title, you know, I thought it was like in in it, it as as a as a, to show I was still scarred from last week. Uh, I thought I thought something completely different from that title. <laughs> I thought it was like a Cinemax movie of you know like a, one of those um one of those nineteen seventies like Debbie Does Dallas kind of movies. Mm-hmm. Like how many good how many of these we're gonna have to sit through? And then uh, it starts off with the uh, this. Uh, strange uh you know matinee cereal and i'm like what i'm all right i'm just gonna and then i didn't even realize until maybe and i'm sure someone told me this but i don't i didn't remember uh i didn't realize until maybe seven eight minutes in i was like wait a minute this is a documentary (laughs) it's not even a movie this is a documentary not even a movie well you know what i mean you know what i mean well yeah, that's 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 uh, derogatory, but that, um, I didn't get what the point of this was until um, the topiary guy was talking about he's saying people lose interest. You know, it's like hard to, to hard to keep people interested because they they come and they learn what to do for a living. They think it's just trimming, 
and they don't really understand the the nature of it. But as he's his as he's saying that, this voiceover is going over the the lion tamer, you know. So it's not even it's not him talking. It's the lion, it, but the, it's the it's it's a topiary guy talking, but it's the lion tamer's footage, and yeah. I'm I'm sitting there like. Why would you lose interest? Why would you want to be a lion tamer and then be and then and start to lose interest in, in in the midst of training to be a lion tamer? And then I realized that okay, that's not him speaking. And then it 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 uh, and that's that's kind of that's like in the middle of the movie. But it dawned on me that in spite of not knowing where any of this is going or whatever, when anybody is talking about really, other than the, their their particular you know strange quirky obsessions. It, it started to dawn on me that all this stuff was overlapping. I didn't, I'm, I'm going to honestly tell you, I didn't understand what it meant, but it was another situation where it's like, I don't, I don't really, I don't really get this, but it's not, it's not kind of turning me off, you know, like it's, it's, it's sort of fascinating to, to, you know, to, to, especially the, the, the mole rat guy. Oh yeah. Because, yeah. Because that, you know, and then like, Okay, the the conversation he has his friend calls him and says they they found them, you know, and then he <laughs> understands exactly what he means. Yeah, <laughs> like come on, come on, dude, <laughs> come on. I'd be like, who the hell is this, and why are you calling me? And found what? Then you know, moments later, he's in Africa and he's finding these these picking these these animals up out of the ground, and they became his. I don't know what his home life is like, but um, you know, his <laughs> people are very understanding. <laughs> yes, yeah. More than once, I was like, I don't. I don't understand any of this. Like, I don't understand, like, what, what am I wanting? And I, I, I started to read on it while, while watching it. And there's, there's not a lot of that I could find. There's not a lot of direct, it, it, everything is, everything I read on it was so matter of fact. It was like, it's a documentary about, uh, you know, a lion tamer. <laughs> and it's like, okay, but is there a hidden, is there some kind of hidden meaning? About it? And nobody's coughing up any kind of information about, like what the deeper meaning was that I could find in the, in the process of, of watching the film. Um, you say it's a, it's a, it's about obsession. I could see that. I could definitely see that. Um, but like I said, when, when I started to realize that the, that uh, w- the images we were seeing weren't, weren't matching with the, the, the voiceover, I started to see how, how do I put this correctly? I started to see how like all these kind of strange quirks, like the, 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 these kind of alternate uh, man, alternate professions, these, uh, you know, these, these, uh, these out of the norm kind of occupations that these guys have, which is what I really thought we were, we were, uh, we were embarking on were they, they, it, it, it took the same kind of personality for these people, mm. you know, for these people to have these, like, like, okay, the mole rat guy, like for him to, for him to need to be on a plane five minutes after a phone call, you know, just like, uh, or the, 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 the line tamer and the, the, um, the woman who was training and she put her, she put her face in the, in the mouth of the lion. And I'm like, I don't, what, 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 you know, and it's like, this is a normal person wouldn't know how to, you know, oh, wouldn't yeah. know how to get anything out of any of this stuff. You know, <laughs> I, I, I mean that, I don't mean that derogatorily. I, I mean, like they, they just would be lost at the, at the, if you said, look, I got you this internship, you just got to do it for, you know, six months, you know, so that you could get your credit. Uh, you're going to go train to be a lion tamer, you know, like a normal person would not know yeah. how to, 
how to process any of that stuff. So not only to be able to do it, but to be passionate about it, it seems like um, it, the film to me was saying that the, the, you know, the, all these people, regardless of what they were doing, they all had the same personality. They all had the same kind of um, adherence to some kind of odd uh, order um, to make life make sense for them. You know, the, the mole rat guy having mole rats in his house, you know, and he says like, you know, most people, most people get in a, a, a rodent infestation and they move, you yeah, know, yeah. and, and I move the rodents into my house. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I had one question. Yeah, go ahead. Did you find any of the character or any of the four featured people off putting or too weird? Because for me, like none of them were none of them were off putting or not accessible or so far off the grid. They just seemed to be passionate about what they were involved in and they weren't like freaks or like people you wouldn't want to meet. I'd want to meet all four of them. That's how I felt. So I was curious. No, it, it, especially the topiary guy where he was just like, yeah, man, if you, uh, if you, if you kind of lose control of one of these things, if you don't maintain it every day, it's just going to get out of control and you're not going to be able to fix it. You know, there were, there were certain, certain things that, and then, yeah, absolutely, Latham. None of them came off as like this one. This guy's like, you know, this this guy's got bodies in his. They all seem <laughs> basement. You know, it's, it's obvious. <laughs> you know, they 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 all seem perfectly um, accessible to me. I didn't notice I, until you until you mentioned it that they were looking right into the into the camera. I didn't I didn't quite notice that until you said something about it. So that that is. Uh, but now I can I can see it all. Hey, listen. There's two kind. There's two kinds of people in the world, Hassan. There's people who need to climb Mount Everest, and there's everybody else. <laughs> you know, I you know I watched three seasons of that show about people climbing Mount Everest, and I'm like, I I okay. Yeah, don't don't. I, even get I understand that Everest. you have that need, but <laughs> I, it's something I will never need to do to. to I, it's something I don't ever need to prove to myself. Well, as a quick as a quick sidebar, I saw I saw an article, just like a random article, many years ago that said there were like 200 people dead people up on Everest. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, and, I, and, and they're I, just up be, there. They're just bodies up there. You can, there's a because they, they can't recover them. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're landmarks. They're literally like yes. trail markers now. Yep. Those people. Uh, yeah. They showed yeah. there. There's a bunch of them on the seasons of that show that they actually go by. Yeah. When you like, get to yeah. Hank, you've only got, you know, 2000 feet left. And when you get right. to Bill, you've only got a thousand feet left. You know, I mean, they're exactly they're markers. Well, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. yeah i could yeah i could go on for hours about i i became i could momentarily obsessed with the everest but absolutely <laughs> what you say steve yeah well you know i do i get yeah. obsessions about things that very briefly and i learn everything i can about them and then i stop and it's just like, hey, that's enough <laughs> no to to answer latham's question none of these people seem like really they they all seemed like normal people i i liked them all so i don't know if that means they were normal but they were all likable. Yeah. Like I didn't look at any, sometimes you see things about people who, who are, and they do do- these documentaries and supposedly the documentaries uh, is unbiased. And, um, but in the course of the, of whatever person, whatever focus of the documentary is, is in the process of explaining what they do or what, you know, what the, the purpose of the documentary is for, you start to get a, you, the impression of this person's kind of out of touch or, you know, this person's really, 
fucking weird. You know, this is mm. this is not. It's not. I'm not learning about the this person's strange occupation. I'm just learning about what what a sociopath does when you know when they get bored. <laughs> and uh, these these guys weren't they. I still don't understand a lion tamer. I don't understand why anybody would want to be a lion tamer, but I respect it. But he talks just, about it. He he idolized uh, Clyde Beatty, like, right? He, mm-hmm. As a mm-hmm. kid, he he was excited about about that. And you know, I mean, there's a whole a whole subculture of circus people, and I feel like it's it's fallen uh, dramatically out of favor. That I'm like I I don't even know if they still do the lion acts anymore. Like most of the animal acts have been retired. Yeah, how many circuses are really even around? Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, yeah, it's uh. It, but you know, and then in the way he described how the lions kind of keep testing him, which is kind of creepy. You know yeah. that they just keep they keep probing him for weakness. You know, and he and and whenever he gets hurt, he can't show them that he's been hurt. So he's got to really snap back at them, or they'll yeah. just rip them. You know, I, I the impression is that they'll just rip them to pieces. Like you know, I guess in the not in a not in a completely graphic way but you know that that yeah. his relationship with that animal would be ruined and they wouldn't be able to work together anymore yeah. so yeah that stuff is that stuff is fascinating i was just like but why would you <laughs> who wants to get in a cage with a lion and start swatting at them you know and you know and pushing them until they freak out at you um because i have cats and I'm glad they're small. <laughs> That's all I can say about it. Because I would be dead many times over if they weren't as small as they are. Well, I've never made this connection, but it makes me think a little bit about, there was a documentary about SeaWorld that came out a few years ago called Blackfish. Blackfish. Oh, yeah. About, about the people who trained uh, the killer whales. And it's the same kind of thing because you have a wild animal in captivity that does not want to be there. Yeah. And, and, and people who have to work with them. If a killer whale wants to wants to drag you to the bottom of the pool, it's going to do it. You can't stop it. It's too strong. It's too big. And a lion, you know, like can't do that necessarily, but it can. It's certainly stronger than you, and you're just kind of keeping it in check. Like he said, you know, he holds up the chair, and you know, the lion's got a one track mind, and now he's got four points to concentrate on, and that's why. Lions yeah, came. and that's I thought how, that was a great I, bit. And and you do you notice that if you have cats, you do distract them. You do yeah. know when they're about to jump on you, and so you you do something, and then they, you know, and then and you you're able to get back, you know, or you're able to to kind of keep them from doing whatever crap that, or or you make a loud noise and they stop, you know, and it's it that's pretty much the same principle. Yeah. I just don't understand like you don't necessarily have to be in the cage with that, you know, with it. I you know in the wild maybe that's that's an important thing to learn if you come across a you know. A, a, a tiger well, all bets <laughs> are off at that point yeah, yeah. yeah basically you probably that's, that's, don't have a chair with you so you know, no. you're pretty much just fucked. well you carry a folding one that's a whole oh, re- that's that's right. that's the explanation <laughs> but uh <laughs> oh, i'm ready for this you know but um no fascinating film i don't know i'm uh my thoughts were like this was the guy's like mean movie this is this is a you know this is a strange quirky documentary about four guys that have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> so now I have to talk to this guy and find out whether. But but um, by the end of the documentary, I had forgotten that I was supposed to that I was watching this movie for a purpose, and I was just like, well, that's, that was fucking crazy, you know. So uh, I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed hey. the experience. Yeah, I I I have a, a quick sidebar. I have a friend of mine who. Uh, was with me at the uh, University of Illinois and he went on to uh, work in zoos. He uh, works in a pachyderm house. So he works with elephants, rhinos, and tapers. Uh, they don't do a lot with tapers. And 
rhinos, they don't train a lot because they don't, you know, they don't do tricks or anything, but the, ele the elephants they work with all the time. And the one thing he said, because uh, when he was still at Brookfield in Brookfield Zoo in Chicago, I went down and uh, got to go back behind the kind of behind the gates and got to I'm a big rhino guy. So I got to pet the rhino and feed the rhinos and stuff. And the one thing he said about the elephants, he's like, when you there's like a there's like a hallway behind all the pens. And he was just like, just make sure you stay all the way to the opposite side wall when you go by the elephants. And I go, OK. He goes, because if you walk by and you're not paying attention, they'll take a swing at you. He's like, it doesn't matter if you're if you're you know, we work with them every single day. And he goes, and if we're not paying attention, they'll take a swing at us. He goes, they just they're always testing the boundaries of what they can do and what they can get away with. He's like, it doesn't matter how long they've been here. It doesn't matter how, how if we just fed them, if we're you know, we just it doesn't matter. He's like, they're always you, you have to keep in your mind that they are a immense wild animal and they've always got the thing going where, you know, they're just, they're just there, you know, they're, they're just always going to be them. He goes, and it's, it's hard to, it's hard to get used to. He goes, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take more than one good smack upside the head from an elephant's trunk. He goes to, to make that ring true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. To keep that, to keep you on your toes probably for the rest of your life. Exactly. You know, there, there's no such thing as a docile wild animal you know they, they just they just don't go to they, they're either they're either in the mood to fuck with you or they're not you know right. and those are those are the days you're lucky you know that's yeah. that's about babies it. are like that too i i i want to write a book on parenting called you're gonna get punched in the face <laughs> <laughs> i've been punched in the face so many times by my son it's not even funny that's great <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, we are not doing down the tubes this week. So, uh, we normally do something here called the martini, which is where we discuss the body of work of, um, the director of your primary film, which would be Mr. Errol Morris. Let's go. I mean, I'm just going to start Steve. Yeah, you go. Uh, I mean, the thin blue line is, is just, it, it may be. My favorite documentary of all time. It, it's certainly top three. I mean, the movie fucking got a guy out of jail. That's how important that movie yeah. <laughs> is. And that's, how many movies have you made have freed people from prison? Okay. I mean, it's. Hey, Joe, Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinowski got three people out of jail with the right? Paradise Lost movies. Well, which, yeah. which, all oh, right. Paradise Lost. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Which I haven't seen yep. yet, but I'd like to. Um, They're all. I met that three guy too. I met one of them. Yeah, really? it's on. Uh, met Damien Eccles at a at a party in New York. He seems like a really cool guy. He was. I couldn't. It's hard to get over the because I had just seen the documentary, so I was like, oh, you know. <laughs> but uh, but he was really cool, and uh, I, I was friends with a friend of his, so I was introduced to him. So you know, and uh, she vouched for him. So it was like you know, it's like okay, but it was he was really a cool guy, and he's a he's an amazing artist. Cause it was a, it was yeah. a, it was a showing. He was uh, showing his, his, uh, it was a gallery. He was showing his paintings. So man, you know, it was, it was crazy. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. He's got, uh, so Errol Morris has, has two films that sit at a hundred percent on, uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, Thin Blue Line and Vernon, Florida. That's interesting. I think Vernon, Florida might be my least favorite of all of his films, hmm. but his first movie Gates of Heaven uh is just it's the pet cemetery one right it's brilliant and i think roger ebert 
had that on his list of if he had 10 movies on a desert island, Gates of Heaven would be one of them. Mm. Like okay. that's, uh, yeah, Vernon, Florida, from what I understand, they went out to make a movie that was kind of showing that these people were criminals and they threatened the filmmakers. So they sort of changed it to like, <laughs> hey, look at how quirky these people are and, and didn't focus on the wow. crime stuff. Um, but Vernon, Florida might be the only one of his films that never really stuck with me. I have it. I own it on DVD, but I, I don't think I've watched it in a long time. He doesn't. He doesn't have a directed as as a director. He doesn't have a film that is rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. What about his one fiction film? Uh, which is The Dark Wind. I've never. Uh, seen there's that. no score for it. I've literally never seen that. I don't even know where one can see. Neither have I. Uh, it stars Lou Diamond Phillips. Uh, Fred Ward is in it, which makes the movie durable. Um, <laughs> Time Rider. Yeah, he's a durable <laughs> uh, It came out in 1991, based on a, stony, a story by Tony Hillerman. Um, Jim Chi is in it as well. Oh, no, no, that's who Lou Diamond Phillips plays, sorry. Um, oh, oh, man. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about it. Uh, I've never, I've never even heard of it. That's crazy. It wasn't any good. It wasn't released. Uh, it says it was. It had. A, it has a streaming release date of 2016. So I wonder what. What I wonder yeah. where it. Uh, Interesting. What? Who's got it? Uh, it was produced by Robert Redford, but he said it was, it was terrible. Wasn't any good. Wasn't released. It was miscast. <laughs> oh, it was it's okay. based on a, a Tony Hillerman wrote it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and then director Earl Morris did not finish the film due to artistic differences with Redford. But he is listed as the director. Yeah, he certainly is. Um, Yeah, it looks pretty awful. It's on Prime. It's on Prime, really? Yeah. You have to to pay, it's not for free. Locking out whatever crap they can. But but Prime Prime has it. Okay. Well, I'll I'll go ahead and skip that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How about you guys? I think Thin Blue Blue Line's my favorite. Yeah, of what I of what I've seen, I would agree with you. Okay. I, 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 I haven't seen. I unfortunately, I have not seen enough of them. I'll be I'll be changing that because uh, I'm yeah, a big fan. See, I'm a big fan of documentaries anyway, and uh, I just I I don't know why I hadn't seen. I recognize a lot of the titles of his movies. They're just they're just, I had just haven't seen them. For whatever it looks reason. like he got into like a phase in the two thousands where he just wanted to focus on, you know, the idiocy of the Bush administration and. Uh, well, he that. did the um, he did the unknown known, which which is uh, just an interview with Don, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, and he basically uh, like on the interview circuit he he kind of walked away from that thinking Donald Rumsfeld like he said that the lights are on and no one's home with Donald Rumsfeld like. <laughs> He did the one about Robert McNamara, the man who basically created the Vietnam War. And McNamara, uh, and that's when he won the Oscar for uh, The Fog of War. And that movie is brilliant because he basically gets McNamara to show remorse for what he did. And it's, you know, the very end of McNamara's life. But the documentary is all just an interview with Robert McNamara. Right. And uh, and supposedly on uh, Mr. Death, which... I would put high on my list of my favorite of his films. Um, 
originally the whole movie was just an interview with Frederick Leuchter, who is this, again, he's, a, he's an, an electric chair repairman. <laughs> so he fixes execution machines and he's kind of a weirdo. He's not like simpleton, like Errol Morris is taking unfair advantage of him or anything. Like he's obviously aware of what's going on and he's not stupid, but uh, as as a guy who specializes in fixing execution machines, these neo-Nazis in Canada hired him to go to Auschwitz and prove that the gas chambers were not used to uh, execute people. No. So he goes there, sneaks into the gas chambers, takes films himself taking chippings of, of the stone walls from Auschwitz, and then sends them to a lab. And originally oh the gosh. documentary was just an interview with him, and people freaked out because they're like, it makes you sympathize with him. And so he went and did some other interviews with like the people at the, like at the company that tested the wall, the wall fragments. And they're like, look, the, the, the toxins would only be on the surface if there was anything there at all. And the first thing we do is pulverize it and mix it. So it's, you know, and then they talk to like some dudes from a Holocaust museum and some other stuff. But really like, what unfolds in that movie is sort of like Frederick Leuchter is being taken advantage of by these neo-Nazis, but then he loves his celebrity and, and he writes a report <laughs> that gets celebrated by the neo-Nazis. Oh, and God. then he can't get a job as a, as an electric chair repairman anymore because he's politically, uh, you know, kryptonite. Right. And, um, <laughs> awfulness and, upon awfulness. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but it's, it's so well done because it's just this nonstop interview with him. And the one uh, American Dharma with Steve Bannon is not the same thing because Steve Bannon is extremely smart and also just nuts and crazy and off his rocker, but articulate somehow. And Errol Morris also in that film uh, leaves in a lot of his responses to Steve Bannon. So you kind of hear them arguing a little bit, you know, or Steve Bannon will say, will say, why did you know, like, why did you vote for Hillary Clinton? Are you crazy? And he's like, cause I was afraid of you. And, uh, you know, <laughs> oh, wow. and uh, it's, it's, to me, nice. it's, it, it's really great. He also did a, uh, a series called first person. I think it was for IFC where it was just in Terrotron interviews. And one of my favorite pieces he ever did was about like the smartest man on the, in the world. And it's this guy who went on, who wants to be a millionaire and was trying, he was trying to not game it. He was trying to strategize his way to winning. Who wants to be a millionaire? And uh, his whole story is just rip shit bonkers. You can probably find it on YouTube. Yeah, it's Rick like Rodner is the guy's name. Yes, yes. And yeah, he pretended to be, he he pretended to be in high school until he was like twenty six. Or not even pretend. He pretended to be the age of a high school student so he could keep going to high school until he was like twenty six. And then he wanted to get all beefed up. I mean, his whole story. He's nuts. He's nuts. But he's also just fascinating. I. What I love about Errol Morris is how he pulls these stories out of people and you're just like, what in the hell? And if you can find first person, I used to have it on, on DVD. I think I linked it out I mean, and never the, got it back. The, they're, they're, the, these subjects they're listing for it on Wikipedia, are, I, it, it's just, this makes me want to watch this immediately. Uh, <laughs> who they've chosen here, although they've got one thing wrong. They have one of the people he interviews is Chris Langan, uh, who is the bar bouncer with the alleged world's highest IQ. And that is not correct. Uh, that's Steve Hovecki. All right. Okay, but that's the guy I'm talking about because that guy was a bouncer. <laughs> oh, the other – well, Rick Rosner is the one who, is the, who wants to be a millionaire contestant. Am I confusing those two people? I might have crossed the wires. I mean, in my they're brain. right next to each other in episodes. They're episode two and four of it's season also- – 
it's getting late and I'm uh, my, I, I have a two year old. So I, I, my brain starts to misfire, but <laughs> I mean, anyway, down to confuse those two as well. But every single thing described here sounds, I mean, one of them is an authority on the giant squid. Who yes. doesn't want to watch that and learn about that? Okay. He talks about eating a chunk of giant squid. I, I <laughs> and what it tasted like. There's a, one of them's a murder victim who has a possible avian eyewitness, a parrot that witnessed the murder. I just want to know what happened there. I want to know what, what happened with the parrot. What, where is, is where, are you looking at the series synopsis on like YouTube or something? Where are you looking Wiki, at this? Wikipedia. Oh, okay. okay. 2000 TV series. He produced and directed it, ran for two seasons. Uh, he used the Interotron. Um, I mean, every guy's bio of what, it's just nuts. A crime scene cleaner, uh, mm. cryogenic immortality promoter, um, <laughs> uh, Unabomber pen pal. I mean, you know, you can't go wrong. Like, I know that at least some of them are on YouTube. You might, or they were, they might have been pulled, but they might check them out. And I definitely, I had them all as a set on DVD. I, it's probably uh, out of print, but. There's, there's got to be a way to get it. It sounds great. I'd, I'd love to watch this. This is really neat. I'm just trying to see if I can find... Oh, there we go. Uh, oh, it was done for Bravo. Bravo, okay. Uh, I, that makes back, sense. Back then, I always confused Bravo for IFC, but I don't think I would today. They are much more different now. Yeah, right. Is Bravo still in existence? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, there's really nothing there. It's a wasteland. There's nothing of interest to watch there anymore. It's all on Bravo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, they've, yeah. they've it's gone with its former it's, self. It's full on Kardashianville and, and, oh, and, yeah. and the Bellas and well, I don't even know. Reality what TV. It's all, well, it's, it's been reality TV for a long time, but at least when they started off, there was at least some, some nuggets of, of interesting stuff well, they, still there. They did Queer Eye originally and that was right. actually really good. Right. Um, but yeah, I cannot, uh, I mean, I, maybe the Bravo's own online portal it's available on or whoever, whoever's carrying Bravo's catalog. Maybe it's on Hulu. Anyway, anyway, uh, well, Ben, uh, listen, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to keep you up too much later. Uh, uh, thanks very much. Uh, My pleasure. This, this was a lot of fun and, uh, I, I, I enjoyed, uh, meeting and chatting with you. And uh, pick, as far as I'm concerned, still two good movie picks because uh, one opened my eyes up to more Errol Morris and uh, I, I got to watch Dreamcatcher again and, and remember, you know, a little oh, bit awesome. more. About, uh, <laughs> well, thanks to Fesley and Music. Please check out our website at sentimentalpod.com for all the poster images we discuss on our Down the Tube segments. And don't forget to download and subscribe to Cinemental wherever you enjoy your podcasts. You can always listen to new episodes at sentimentalpod.com. Also, you can always follow us on all major social media accounts at sentimentalpod. For Asan Godwin, Latham Conger III, Ben Rock, and myself, we say thank you so much for listening, and as always, in the words of our friend and naked mole rat wrangler, Truman Burbank. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night.